Today's Bible reading is continuing our series in Acts, looking at the spread of the gospel after Jesus ascends to heaven. And today's passage is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Before we begin, let me pray. Dear gracious Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people together, um, of reminding each other of how you have saved us and of Yeah, of the great mission that we have, Lord, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Lord, I just pray that you would soften our hearts. Lord, as we read your word, please speak to us um, and give us willing hearts, Lord, to listen and to obey. I do pray for Isaac. I pray that you would help him to preach your word with faithfulness, Lord. Um, Yeah, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, Well, thank you for that reading. Please keep your Bible open there. It would be good to follow along with what uh, we're looking at for the Bible and checking that what I say is true from God's Word. Well, as mentioned, I work as a university evangelist and our students, and there's a lot of students, I can see a lot of student age people here, are in exams at the moment. And the weird thing for most students at the moment is they're all online still from COVID, um, uh, which is a big temptation to cut corners and have a few things open that you shouldn't maybe. Um, and now when you're finishing an exam, you just log off and get back to YouTube or whatever was rudely interrupted by university. 
And, uh, but back in the day, think back to school, think back to exams when you were in person, I think there's three categories that people would fall into after the big event of an exam. You'd have some people that would be bolters. They would just pen down, run away. Is anyone here just leaves after an exam, doesn't want to talk to anyone? A few nods there. Uh, the second group are the ponderers. They sit, ponder for a few moments about where their life went so wrong. They're eerily quiet, often downcast. Any ponderers here? So they hang around with others, but you're just quiet. Well, the last group is the post-exam analyzer. Is anyone a post-exam analyzer? Yeah, a lot of you. I can't stand you guys. Um, you've remembered every single question, what you answered, where they went wrong. You're angry at yourself. You're angry at the lecturer. You're angry at yourself and the lecturer. And one of my mates, JJ, he was a post-exam analyzer. I would just say, can you please shut up? I was there. I don't need the play-by-play analysis. But today we're in a world of analysts where everyone analyses everything after the fact. Uh, Whether you watch The Bachelorette, there are online recaps and podcasts, who got the rose, who made a mistake, who's on a group date. I've never seen this show, but I have wandered into the room while my wife has seen it occasionally. There's Reddit threads picking apart any subject you want to to ridiculous minutiae. When a Marvel trailer comes out, there's more comments picking it apart, they're longer than the Bible. And sports too, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but doesn't the post-game analysis run longer than the game itself? It's almost like the point of sport is providing fodder for the hours and days that follow to pick apart every throw or shot or goal. But for those of us who love these shows, and please don't out yourself as a Bachelorette fan here, or love that sport or that Marvel series, we can't get enough of the post-game analysis. Why? Is because it deepens our appreciation. We love unpicking it because it helps us understand what's going on. Well, this morning we're looking at a part of the Bible that is all about the post-game analysis. First, we get the major action of what's happening here. That's described in verse 1 to 13. That's sort of game time. And uh, you can follow along in your Bibles there. So verse or sentence 1 to 13, but we we call them verses. And we're reading this historical account from the mid-30s AD of the Spirit of God coming down and giving the early followers of Jesus the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues, in languages they never knew. And that goes for 13 sentences, 13 verses of action. But the next 26 verses, twice as long, we get the post-game analysis. What does this all mean? But more than the post-game show or episode recap, this is the official interpretation from God's spokesman, Peter. This would be for a uni student, not like their mate just going through every question they just went through. This is more like your lecturer walking through every question and explaining, this is what you were meant to notice here. Here's where you might go wrong. Now, to those of you who are new to this whole Jesus thing, I want to put you at ease. This Bible passage is full of supernatural stuff. And you might be thinking... What have I got myself into as I've wandered into church and been dragged along by my friend? This noise from heaven, unexplained wind, miraculous languages. Now we might get something that happens like that with this storm outside today. Uh, But don't expect anything that radical to happen here. Now God may surprise us. He can do it. Who knows? 
But there's good reasons to think this particular spiritual experience is unique to this time in history. And we shouldn't expect to encounter God in the same way that these early believers did. It might be how he works, but don't expect it. But I want to acknowledge the whole thing is a bit odd. And it's good not to avoid parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. But here's the thing, I want us all to listen closely today. Because this isn't some obscure sport you're not really interested in. It isn't an episode recap of a show that no one will remember in a few decades. This is the kind of event and post-game analysis that demands your attention. It's the, the first aftershocks, if you will, of the event that changed all of human history. If you thought Queen Elizabeth's funeral was big news, well, this is magnetized, so many times greater, magnitudes greater. This is the aftershocks of the event that changed human history, the assumption to the eternal throne over all creation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it starts in Jerusalem, and like the aftershocks, think about the ripples in a pond when you throw a stone in, like the aftershocks of an earthquake. That's what's going on here in Acts, this history of the early church. This is non-fiction, this is a true event. Acts is uh, describing events that happened from the mid-30s AD to the mid-60s, describing initially uh, from Jesus dying, rising back to life again and ascending to heaven, and then everything that happens after that. And what I'm sure was highlighted last week, uh, did you do all of chapter 1 last week? Getting a nod somewhere? Yeah, somewhere? Yeah, forgetful, that's okay. I never remember what I spoke on last week. Um, But Acts 1.8 is the verse to remember as you look at Acts. This is the sort of abstract of the whole book. It tells you everything that's going to happen. Jesus says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in, okay, these are the aftershocks, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the whole of Acts in a sentence. The resurrection is the bomb blast and the ripples going out from there. And it's a message for the whole earth. But Jesus said back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, wait in Jerusalem for this spirit baptism that is coming. And so they've waited there, and here's what happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This day of Pentecost is a a time marker that was one of the three main Jewish festivals, 50 days after Passover. It's a bit like Christmas and Easter or maybe Chinese New Year for us, big family celebrations and the population of Jerusalem would swell. And then all of a sudden, there's this noise, this wind, this blowing a gale. Think papers start flying up in the air. It's like we're all in a shampoo commercial with our hair flowing back. It's loud. This fiery tongue thing comes down. And the spirit causes them to start speaking human languages otherwise unknown to them. You couldn't speak Italian. Now you can speak Italian. I can't speak Mandarin. Now I can speak Mandarin. It's strange, not just to their ears, but to ours. To, uh, not just to our ears, but to theirs too. It draws a crowd, and they're confused. Verse five. 
Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. (laughs) What's going on here? Our Western minds ask, is this some over-interpreted hurricane? No, utterly amazed. They asked, verse 7, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans... How is it that each of them hears in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So you get the events happening here. It's not normal. Every nation hearing their own native tongue spoken spontaneously. Now, please note, if you've ever been into a church which has uh, had speaking in tongues, as it's called today, it's not incoherent babbling. It's a clearly recognisable language, able to be interpreted and understood. So what, what does this mean? Why is this happening? Well, partly, this is to show the source of the Spirit and that the Spirit, verse 2, is from heaven. Remember, this is a Spirit that Jesus promised to send in his absence. And then it seems to me this spiritual activity required a physical expression to know what was happening. Think about Jesus when he heals the paralytic, when he says... So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, stand up, take your mat and walk. (laughs) How could we know his sins were forgiven, a spiritual thing, without the physical sign that he'd shown? Well, that's what's going on here. There's this physical manifestation of, of the tongues being spoken, of these flames from heaven of the wind, to show us that a spiritual event was occurring. An inherently invisible, non-material activity at this moment required some type of physical presence to show they weren't making it up because nothing like this had ever happened before. It takes a subjective experience and shows a physical aspect of it. But please note, this doesn't happen every time someone hears about Jesus throughout Acts. The speaking of tongues, strange spirit stuff, only seems to happen at momentous occasions, like the gospel reaching a new area or a a new kind of person as it reaches the Gentiles. It's only that in moments where this unstoppable gospel reaches a new area that you get these momentous physical signs, the visible, audible manifestations of the Holy Spirit to show that the Holy Spirit really has arrived because otherwise it would just be a completely subjective experience there was a girl in my school once uh, she was really uh, quite charismatic uh, in a theological sense and she'd say amongst her friends I can tell the Holy Spirit's with me every time I get a tingle up my spine and get goosebumps to which another of my female friends responded well I get goosebumps when I'm making out with a guy Is that the Holy Spirit? It's confusing if it's just a subjective experience. 
Instead, with these signs from heaven, we get the declaration from God that this truly is a verifiable activity. This is God himself sending his spirit onto his people. Now, we need to cover this background and some of these controversies, but if we just focus on the speaking in tongues, we're actually missing the key thing about this miracle. And the key part is this, what everyone was hearing. (laughs) Not so much the weird sounds, the unexpected languages, but what was being heard. Yes, their own language, but in their own language, they were hearing, verse 11, the wonders of God. They were declaring the mighty works of God. The Spirit is giving the disciples power to testify about Jesus. It's the first overflow of the unstoppable gospel. A little foretaste of where the whole book of Acts is going, from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is a foretaste of this gospel that will go to people of every tongue and tribe and language and nation. Now, this great gift of God is impressive, but we don't need to seek out this kind of experience because what's truly impressive is the message about Jesus that they were speaking. It's unique to this first moment. We don't need an experience like this, although God may provide it, but we shouldn't expect it either. I say to the students studying language up at Griffith University, I would recommend studying Japanese rather than praying for the gift of spontaneous languages. But we must be careful not to de-spiritualise this too much as well. If you're, again, here today and not a Christian, all this spiritual God stuff might be a bit strange to you. You might think it's all superstition. This, This couldn't really have happened, could it? The Bible challenges our, I'm going to use a weird phrase here, our humanistic naturalism. That is, this reductive belief that the physical stuff of this world is all there is, that there's nothing beyond the physical realm. Maybe that's you today who sees this whole Christian thing as a bit primitive. Maybe that science has killed God, that there is nothing we can know beyond what we can see and touch and observe, and a spiritual thing like this couldn't possibly have occurred. But to that I want to say, science and spirituality can work perfectly well together. You don't have to choose one or the other. Because science... (laughs) Science is a study of the physical world. That's its definition. It only looks at observable phenomena that can be repeated. And because science is only interested in physical things, it can't say anything about the spiritual world of odd spiritual matters like this. Science cannot disprove God, but nor can it prove God. It's just asking different questions. It's it's looking at the physical world. Science doesn't stand over an historical event such as that described here and say this never happened because historical events are by their nature not repeatable. Now, I didn't applied science degree. I love science and I love God. But there's a warning here for those who come from that way of thinking. And this is true whether you are not a Christian or you are a Christian. Don't discount the supernatural. The Bible makes Western materialists uncomfortable. But the Bible just holds spiritual matters and historical events, physical things, side by side, occurring in the same physical world as we know it. Stuff like this wasn't happening all the time, of course. The observers there were as shocked as you or I would be if it happened today. But it was undeniable to them as it would be undeniable to us if we saw it today. 
But remember my introduction. To understand what this event is really about, we need to hear the post-game analysis. And we're well into the second half. So the crowd suspects these people are drunk. They're asking, what does this mean? And they're drunk. And what does Peter say? Say, verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. This is why you know they aren't Australians. It's only 9am is no valid excuse over the summer holidays for many Australians. But then Peter quotes the prophet Joel from hundreds of years earlier, verse 16. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And don't you know your Bibles? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people and sons and daughters will prophesy, young men see visions, old men dream dreams and even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says there's no need to speculate about the meaning of this sign, to debate in detail about what constitutes a tongue and what I need to do to get them. He says, no, if you read the prophet Joel hundreds of years earlier, he says, remember what God's prophet wrote down. When would the Spirit arrive? When the last days were here. The Spirit's arrival is a sign that we're in the last days of history. The Spirit will alert you to the time that we are living in. These last days waiting for Jesus to return. When you see the Spirit, it means... The great last days are here. We all know what to do with signs. They, they symbolise something, don't they? They point to what is to come. You know, when your alarm goes off in the morning, it's a sign to get up. Um, I, I work with uni students, so it's not really a sign for them to get up. Every year I get a text. I text someone at like 10 past 11 for our Bible study or one-on-one catch-up. I go, are oh, you nearly here, mate? Oh, sorry, just woke up. Nearly, nearly lunchtime. <laughs> they miss the sign to wake up and to get out of bed. But it's time to wake up. This is what the Spirit is doing. It's a sign that something has started. <laughs> a sign of the new stage of history when God Himself has shown up and we await the Lord to return. And indeed, we are awaiting judgment there, is alluded to through the Joel quotation. The sign is here. A new time period has come. This is the age, verse 21, when all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter explains what this new age is for, verse 22. And as I read, okay, you've got to do some work here. Sorry, I work with uni students. There's no passive people here. When I read from 22 following, I want you to take note of how many times I make reference, Peter makes reference to Jesus, Messiah, he, him, in reference to him, versus how many times the Holy Spirit, he is mentioned, Okay. If you've got your, uh, for those who are taking notes, you can do a little tally if you want. So just listen carefully and we'll see what we get. We'll play a bit of bingo at the end. Okay, and remember, this is the great, spe- uh, great speech explaining the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So listen here. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. And exalted to the right hand of God, he has Receive from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay, how'd you go? What's the count? How many did you get for Jesus? Pull it out, don't be shy. 20. 20. What did you get over here? 21. Anyone got less? 22? 22. We could just keep going up until someone says 100 and then I know you're just making it up. How many references to the Holy Spirit? Anyone get more than one? One, the, whole, the reference to the Holy One there is actually a reference to Jesus. Maybe two, because you get the Holy Spirit, and then this is what Jesus has poured out. So maybe two. But do you see my point? It's a hiding to none, isn't it? Like, that's a massive score indifference in any sporting field. Is that surprising to you? Wouldn't we expect the sermon <laughs> explaining the Holy Spirit to be about the Holy Spirit? But who is it about? Jesus. The great Holy Spirit, this is a a great surprise of Acts 2, the first great surprise, is that the Holy Spirit's sermon is about Jesus. And what does Peter say about Jesus? Well, that God attested to him by his miracles, that he was killed, yet God raised him up, that he couldn't be held by death as King David had foreseen in Psalm 16, that the great Messiah, the Christ who would come later, could not and would not be abandoned to the grave, that God raises Jesus up, verse 32. And where is Jesus now? Seated at the right hand, the position of honour, ruling with the Father, from where he poured out the Spirit. And the conclusion is, let all of Israel know with certainty that God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, that is, the Christ, the great King. This is the sermon which launched the church. And it tells us all about Jesus. We did uh, some challenge weeks on campus earlier this year. We asked people to fill in the blank. Jesus is blank. Fill in the blank. And people would say he's a prophet, a great teacher, a healer, a God, a hippie, 
because uh, he's always wearing the, you know, the long tunic and sandals, apparently. A revolutionary, maybe. One guy said to me, a failure. Jesus is a failure. Jesus is Muslim, someone wrote on our signs. But we don't have to guess about who Jesus is. <laughs> there is one person whose opinion accounts above all others. And God the Father says Jesus, his son, is the forever king, the Lord and Christ, seated and ruling above all. That is why the great Holy Spirit sermon points to Jesus, as the Spirit always does. There's other surprises in this. There's a surprise that this great one is rejected, yet God has chosen him. That people miss the significance of Jesus. They got distracted by the events and missed the post-game analysis which explained it. The other surprise for me is the emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. Did you notice that as we went through? He majors on the resurrection. Jesus coming back to life again. We miss this so often. We speak about the cross. Your logo's got a cross in it, doesn't it? That's really right and appropriate that we focus on the cross. We need that. That's where Jesus died in our place, took our penalty, uh, took our sin for us. That is the heart of Christianity, the great sacrifice where the substitutionary lamb was subbed in on our behalf. But the resurrection is the vindication. It's the proof that he is the Christ, the King. As God raised him, it showed that death couldn't hold him, that he is the one who was promised in the line of David who would be the forever King. The resurrection declares that Jesus is innocent, accepted by the Father and exalted and ruling forever. Well, put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites as they hear this. Or maybe put yourself in their sandals is probably more appropriate. Verse 23, this one God sent, you killed. You killed God's son, verse 23. You'd be feeling a bit guilty, right? What happens? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? What does Peter say? You've done plenty enough already. No, he doesn't say that. Go away. No. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Verse 40, be saved from this corrupt generation. And so those who accepted his message were baptised. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Peter says, repent. That's the right response to this Jesus being made king. Turn back to God. You've been walking away from him. You've renounced citizenship in his kingdom. And so you need to turn around to repent and come back to the king. To use Aussie language, you need to chuck a yui. You're driving away from God, you've got to chuck a yui and turn back to him. But that's not all. And be baptised, be washed. <laughs> Let the work of the Spirit wash you of your sins as the work of Jesus is applied to you. And note verse 39, the Spirit is not just for those who receive these special gifts, the Spirit is for all believers. And it's the same for us too. If Jesus really is the king, we must turn 
back to God. If you have been ignoring the one whom God declared to be his forever king, then turn back to him. Chuck a yui. Say sorry. And the promise is, you will also be forgiven. Washed of every sin. Everything you've done or said against God's words. And this is great news for every nation. It doesn't matter your language or background. It's not an Eastern thing or a Western thing. This is news for the whole world to return and live under the great King Jesus. And so as we close, this leaves us with two questions. The first is, have you repented? Have you turned back to God? Have you turned to the King? to be washed and find forgiveness in his name. Because you cannot keep ignoring Jesus without consequence. You are opposing the great king. We think ignoring Jesus might be a neutral state. Now, if you ignore Jesus, you are standing in opposition to God's appointed powerful king. But the great promise is to turn back Don't worry about getting miraculous languages. You'll get something far more miraculous and far greater. The Spirit bringing the work of Christ in your heart to forgive you. It's a promise, verse 21, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Get right with God by doing good stuff. It's not being so holy that you even show up to church in the middle of a rainstorm. It's not about being clever or stupid. It's not about being nice. It's not about being religious in a vague sense or a very strict sense. It is simply calling on the name of Jesus to be saved. The second and final question that then comes out of this is, are you all about Jesus? Do you know the message of Jesus? Do you know why Jesus is the king? That's why I sort of pushed you a little bit in that significance of the resurrection here to show the value in pushing deeper into God's word, to know Christ deeper. We need to be committed to understanding more about Jesus through his word, to give his brain that he's given us to understand his world that you apply to your job or your study or your work and give those same brain chemicals and mind to understanding Jesus more deeply. But it's not just about knowing the message of Jesus. Are we emphasising the right things? If you're a Christian and you want to be a spiritual Christian, well, what does a spiritual Christian do? What Peter does speaks about Jesus. Christians can be really confused about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. For some, they will claim spirit work is about the miraculous signs, that the Holy Spirit is all about guidance, just getting a a sense or, or, or you know, pins and needles in your arms or a vague spirit. The Spirit's about guidance or, or praise and worship. That's what the Spirit's about, losing yourself. That it's about tongues. That, that He, the Holy Spirit, is just about giving tongues. That misses the point. The Spirit, He is a sign. And I work at Griffith Uni. It's like focusing on the Spirit is like wanting to get a degree from Griffith Uni and just getting to the bottom of the hill at QE2 Hospital there and seeing the sign that says Griffith University Nathan and then marvelling at the sign for three years. 
never walking up the hill to get the main thing that the sign was pointing towards. The great moment of the Spirit's arrival at Pentecost is all about the focus of the speech. The God-given analysis of this moment says, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Spiritual Christianity is that which proclaims Jesus and forgiveness of sins in his name. If you want to be a spirit-filled Christian, if you want to be a spirit-filled church, and I want you to be a spirit-filled Christian and a spirit-filled church, it's not about being the church or person that focuses on the spirit and the manifestations of the spirit. Instead, it's the church and the Christian who emphasise the one whom the spirit points to, namely Jesus himself. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll have a few minutes of reflection. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please help us not to miss the forest for the trees. To see that this and this life and this passage and this world is all about Jesus. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit. (laughs) That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord has your spirit, as your spirit applies the work of Christ to our hearts to cleanse us from our sin. So please help us to be those who have turned back to you and then keep our eyes fixed on our Saviour. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Have some reflection time now.